Is he worthy? That's such a great question that the world asks, right? That the, that the world asks and, and even questions. But the, the refrain, yes, he is. He is the only one worthy. Um, just gets, kind of gives me goosebumps, right? Have you ever had a boss you loved or liked? Or if you haven't started working yet and maybe you're in school still, maybe it'd be a teacher or a principal that you really enjoyed uh, or, or liked. Did I turn myself off there, Josh? Or am I still good? Okay. Obeying a boss, a teacher, or principal you like or love really is pretty easy. You know, you get along with them. However, if you've had a boss or a teacher or a principal that you don't really like that much, doing what they say is difficult. Being in their presence can even ruin your day, let alone when they tell you to do something. This morning, we're going to continue our study in 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25. Last week, we began a three-part mini-series in 1 Peter titled, Called, to Live as an Example. Last week was part one. If you didn't get a chance to be here or listen online, you can follow us on Spotify and find that message, along with the previous messages we've had. We learned last week that as believers in Christ, we are to submit to all governing authorities in every way, except for when those authorities command us to break God's law. The only exception we see in Scripture. This morning, we're going to continue to keep this train of thought going because it doesn't stop there. Peter continues in his letter. But we're going to shift from the governing authorities or the the human institutions over the believer to the relationship of the servant and master. Now, some of us might go, well, we don't have servants and masters anymore, so why are we even covering this? Well, because we're working through God's word. It's here for us. We know that all scripture is profitable for teaching, right? It's it's profitable for teaching. It's all God-breathed. It's here for a purpose, to help us understand the context a little bit better about what Peter is writing about, I'd like to share some quotes from author Bob Deffenbaugh in his commentary that is found on Bible.org speaking about this passage. And as I unpack these, it helped to make sense of how to apply this, this passage of Scripture in our life where we don't really talk about Masters and slaves anymore, right? Servants and masters. So let's get a a better background of what's going on. First off, he says that slavery played a very prominent part in the lives of those who lived in Peter's day. In the Roman Empire, there were as many as 60 million slaves. Not 60,000, 60 million slaves. Slavery began with Roman conquests, slaves being originally mainly prisoners taken in war. In very, early, in very early times, Rome had few slaves, 
But by time the New Testament came around, and in Peter's day, slaves were counted by the million. This was a part of the culture, if you will. What's interesting to note is that it wasn't just menial tasks that were given to these slaves. They were doctors, they were teachers, they were musicians and actors, secretaries, stewards, were all slaves. In fact, all the work of Rome was done by slaves. He says that it would be wrong to think that the lot of slaves was actually wretched and unhappy and that there were always treated with cruelty. Many slaves were loved and trusted members of the family, but one great inescapable fact dominated the whole situation. In Roman law, a slave was not a person, but a thing. Second point he makes in this passage is that in the Bible, slavery is not commended, but neither is it condemned as a social evil the Christian master should cease to practice or the Christian slave should seek to overthrow. Christian masters are instructed not to abuse their power or their slaves, found in Colossians 4. Christian slaves are encouraged to obtain their freedom if possible in 1 Corinthians 7. But if not, to submit to their masters, Colossians 3. And they are are especially not to abuse their status as, a, as Christians in relation to their believing masters, 1 Timothy 6. Third point, Peter does not assume that all masters are cruel, but he does assume that some will be, and that this will result in the unjust suffering of many Christian slaves. And lastly, Christian slaves would especially be targeted for persecution by their unsaved masters. Those are the words of Bob Deffenbaugh in his commentary found on Bible.org. Knowing that can help us to understand a little bit about why Peter would write this, what we're getting ready to read. So with that in mind and that cultural background, let us go to the Lord in prayer as we have his word open and seek wisdom and discernment and direction from him who is the author of our faith and the author of his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we admit that when we come across passages that don't fit our cultural concepts, it's hard to understand, firstly. But secondly, it's easy to just breeze over and ignore them. But Lord, your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, all scripture is God-breathed. You have breathed it into existence and you maintain it with your breath. We also know that all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuking, and training up in righteousness. So, Lord, anything that we still have of your word, of your Scripture, is important to us. Lord, would you give us eyes to understand and, and see you and your word here, to understand it. Holy Spirit, would you 
open our ears and, and minds to be able to comprehend what you have for us this morning through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So reading in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 18, we'll read from 18 to 25. You can follow along in your own Bible. I'll be reading out of the ESV. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Here in 1 Peter, Peter has already addressed the uh, being subject in the name of the Lord to governing authorities. And now he's shifting the relationship to servants and masters, which was very prevalent in his day. That relationship would have been one to talk about. So how do we take this passage and, and apply it to our life? Well, I find it interesting because even though we don't have masters and servants anymore as far as slaves and masters, Peter could have used a different word. There's room here in the text. Let me explain. He says, with respect, submit to those in charge over you, no matter how they treat you. Right? He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not just to the good ones, but to the bad ones as well. This word servant, in Greek, there are many different words that could be used for servant. One of them we learned last week, right, when in verse, uh, here, at verse 17, um, no, not 17, right before 17, 16, but living as servants of God is the Greek word doulos, which always in scripture always means slave, bond servant. All, every time doulos is used in scripture, it always refers to that relationship, that bond slave. Peter here in verse 18 could have used that very same term if that was the only type of slave he was talking about, but he doesn't. He uses a different term that was popular or that was used in Greek for, for servant called okotai. I don't know if that's how you actually say it, but it's a different Greek word. Where doulos means slave every single time it's used, okotai means more of a servant, which can mean slave in that context, but has a, a, 
uh, a different influence to be more like a house servant or a housemaid or someone who serves in one's house. Oftentimes, could be a paid servant, someone who lives on the property. Uh, anyone watch Downton Abbey? Right? So it, it's Victorian time where you had lords of the manor. And they had servants that lived on the property, lived in the house, that served the Lord. They were paid, maybe not well, but they were servants in the house. This term where, where Peter is talking about servants be subject to your masters is that kind of word. It's not slave, although it can mean slave. It includes that, but it also has room for more of like a house servant or housemaid. Why is this important? It's important because now we can apply it to our, our culture. Maybe to the relationship of a boss and an employee. Or someone with authority over you that you are working with or working for. I've often heard this passage taught that way. And I said, well, it doesn't really say that. It says servants, like slaves. But there's actual room here in the original language to, to stand behind that relationship of boss and employee. The word master literally means a lord or a master or a ruler, someone with authority over another. And as we read from Ben, uh, Ben, Bob, what I read earlier, Bob, there we go, from Bob, not all masters were cruel. Not all of them were, were evil masters. In fact, some of the masters loved their servants that served with them. And so Peter understands that. He says to subject yourselves, surrender yourselves to your masters with all respect. What's interesting there is that that word respect is that same word, fear God. It's the same word. Only here it's translated as respect. If you look up a couple verses where it says, uh, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. That word fear is the same word that's translated respect here. Last week we talked about, you know, when we fear God, yes, it's a, it's a knees-shaking, terrified phobia, right? A phobos is the, is the Greek word, which means fear. But it's also a fear out of reverence, out of respect, right? And so here we see that it, that same word is even translated with all respect. And he says, not only to the good, but to those who are unjust. Man, that's got to be hard if you're in that relationship, right? If you have a boss that is constantly hounding you, you know, constantly looking over your shoulder. Don't talk to Amy. She, this does not apply to her. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I was, wow, that, that was starting to scare me there for a minute. But in all seriousness, he, he's talking to the relationship of someone with authority over another in this case, he was directly addressing the culture with slaves and, and, and masters, but also to these house servants. And we can take that and understand that we still have those kinds of relationships culturally here. We have bosses. If you work for an employer, 
They're your boss. They have some level of authority over you, right? And he says to respect them, to, to have a reverent respect for them. Not just the good ones, not just the ones that treat you well, but even those who don't treat you well. In verse 19 and 20, says we, we see that God rewards those who endure such suffering in his name. It says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verses 19 and 20. This word gracious thing is a compound word for grace, right? The root word there is grace. And we've unpacked this before, meaning that grace is a gift or blessing brought to man by Jesus Christ. That's what the root word is defined as. I didn't give that definition. That is the Greek understanding of that word, of grace. And so where he says it is a gracious thing, he's speaking that this is the gift, this is the blessing brought to you, by Christ, that when you endure suffering in his name, he rewards you with grace. Sorrows and griefs is pain of the body or mind. So think about bosses you've had. Hopefully you've not had any bosses that have whipped you or beat you physically. But most of us probably have, at least at one point in time in our life, experienced a boss that has caused us maybe some mental or emotional harm. This word suffering and griefs or sorrows and griefs addresses both pain of the body or pain of the mind. And Peter says that when we endure suffering unjustly, it is evidence that God's grace is at work in our life. Two points here. When we endure suffering unjustly, it is the evidence of God's grace at work in our life. And the second point is when we endure suffering unjustly, we are rewarded by his grace or blessing, even if we can't understand it. He says, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, we endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter in these first couple verses, 18 to 20, focuses on the relationship of servant and masters, the good and the bad, and how, as a believer, how we interact with those who have authority over us, whether it's a boss or a principal or a teacher or parents, right? How we respond as believers to those in authority over us matters because of who we represent. Right? And he says that it is a gracious thing when you're under the authority of someone who is not just and treating you unjustly to respond by submission. And we receive this gracious thing, this grace, this gift of grace that comes only by Jesus himself. And then he suffers, or excuse me, he suffers. He transitions in verses 21 to 23, in the rest of this part of 
scripture, he shifts from that relationship and he says, because you have one who's done it for you, he's your example. He makes a shift as to why we're to suffer in the name of Jesus. Basically, he says that our calling is to be like Jesus who suffered for us. He says, for what credit is it when you sin or are beaten? Oh, was, verse 21, for to this you have been called. You've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter says that you have an example and you've been called to that example. And he says about Jesus, he says, Jesus committed no sin. This is gospel presentation, right? He committed no sin. No deceit was in his mouth. When reviled, he did not revile back. I had to look that one up because I, I, even in English, I, I don't know what revile means. Like, that's not a word I typically use. Anybody use that one? No? Okay, good. I'm not alone. Whew. So I had to look it up because I didn't know what it meant. But it literally means to abuse insultingly, to vilify, to slander. I think we can look around our culture today and see plenty of that going on. And so the idea here is that when Jesus had insults slung his way in an abusive manner, when he was made out to be vilified, he didn't return in kind. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. This word entrusted means to commit, to deliver, to hand over, to pledge. So when Jesus, in the suffering that we just celebrated a couple week, uh, Sundays ago in his death and resurrection, right? We, we know that Christ died for us. And in that abuse, in that uh, attack, physically, emotionally, mentally, that he endured, he not once returned any of it. But instead, he committed himself to his father, who he knew and committed to know that he would judge justly. Verses 24 and 25, Peter continues, he said, talking about Jesus, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Some translations there might say cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here Peter explains, he says that Jesus' death on the cross has made a way for you, has made atonement for your sins, for our sins. And the reality here is that what Jesus, or excuse me, what Peter is revealing about Jesus to these believers who, who were undergoing persecution and in a culture where, yes, some of them might have been slaves and servants to masters, whether good or bad, he says, remember Jesus. 
Remember what he's done for you. That in his death on the cross, he made atonement for your sins. The reality is, is that all your sins were laid on him when he hung on the cross. All of them. You know, I often, I often hear this uh, from, from those I, I try to disciple or that I do disciple, that they get caught up in the current sin that they're in. Or sometimes they'll even be feeling guilty about past sins that have already been accounted for, right? And I have to explain that when Jesus hung on the cross, he died taking all of, all of your sin, your entire lifespan worth of sin, on the cross. Otherwise, it would be Jesus plus in our salvation. And so the reality is, is that all of our sin that we will ever commit in our lifetime has already been paid for on the cross. All of it. It's paid in full. When he died on the cross and was buried, he took all of the world's sin with him into death paying the price once and for all. Now, does that mean that when we sin, we, there's no, nothing for us to do? No. We still need to repent and, and, and confess our sins to the Lord so that we may be under the control of the Holy Spirit in our life again. That sanctification process. But we have the assurance that in his death, our entire life's worth of sin has been paid for. Peter continues and he says, by his wounds you have been healed. This is a direct quote of Old Testament scripture in Isaiah. He says, by his wounds you have been healed. This speaks to the spiritual healing that we just talked about that is available in the, the atonement, the spiritual healing. Your, the a soul apart from Christ is dead. It has no life. Yes, it's eternal, but it's separated from God who gives life. Right? And so Peter is saying that by his wounds, you've been healed. Your soul, as we, the moment that you surrendered your life to Jesus, your soul has been healed of that curse, that death that comes because of the price he paid. And because of this healing, he goes on, says, by his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Right before that, he says that he bore our sins on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Because of the spiritual healing that has taken place and the Holy Spirit residing in us, it is technically possible, though very, 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 very difficult and impractical, to die once and for all to sin for the rest of your life. It is possible if you know how to surrender your life to the Holy Spirit every single second of every single day for the rest of your life. Problem is, not even the best of us can do that. <laughs> so, Though it's possible because of the shedding of Christ's blood, the reality is this is a process of dying to sin and living to righteousness. We call this sanctification. We call this continual surrender to the Holy Spirit, continuing to confess our sins when we sin because we're not perfect. 
it's talking, Peter's talking about sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Christ in all that we do. And that's only possible because of the healing that is found in the atonement by the wounds of Jesus. So Peter is addressing specifically servants and masters in that relationship. And I think it's interesting that in that relationship is where he goes on to explain this process, right? Because it might have been very hopeless for a servant that they were going to be in bondage the rest of their life, especially if they were in bondage to a bad master, to one that was unjust. And Peter says, listen, Jesus, the ultimate servant, did everything and has been through everything you've been through and worse. And he focused his eyes on our heavenly father, the one who judges justly. He is the example. And so what do we take from that? As believers, in every relationship that we have, including government, which we focused on last week, including bosses or teachers or parents or those that we are under authority, whatever those relationships look like, whether they're a good boss or a bad boss, as a believer, because we represent Jesus who did everything for us, because we're his representation, we are to follow his steps. And it's not easy. It it, it can be very difficult but Jesus is the example for us. And he kept his eyes on his heavenly father, knowing that there would be a day where justice would be served, but it wasn't his responsibility and neither is it ours. And then he also says, remember, your souls have been healed and cleansed by the blood. And that we are to die to the sinfulness inside of us and live to righteousness by surrender, by this, this idea of surrendering oneself. As we surrender to the Holy Spirit, we are made more and more in the image of Christ. And he reminds his readers of that. We're going to transition to a time of communion So would you pray with me as we close this portion and and transition to our communion time? Lord, we're thankful for your word. And even if it's difficult, and even if we can't see some of the the parallels and, and the applications, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you, through your Holy Spirit, have spoken to each one of us, Lord. We, have, we can see the application in our own lives, Lord. Help us to be more like Christ every day of our life, every moment of every day, as we continue to learn how to surrender to you. Lord, as we surrender, we, we, we become more and more grounded in the fact that you are the cornerstone of our faith. And that you're building us up as living stones, holy priesthood, a holy nation. And it's not by work that we're doing, Lord. It's simply by following your example 
and learning how to surrender. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this morning where we've been able to gather in your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.